Good Physics Day, everyone. So one of the main goals of the Physics Alive podcast is to share what the education community has learned, whether that be from folks who are doing physics education research as a, as a research career, or whether folks are teachers who are trying things out in their classroom and maybe they've published a peer-reviewed paper about it, or maybe they're just trying things out in their classroom. Uh, they're making games, they're making videos, they're making podcasts themselves. They're trying these things out. They are sharing them with students. They are sharing them with the community. And there are so many great ideas out there. And what I want to be able to do is to share them. I want to be able to help disseminate these ideas, to have, to have there be as many avenues for, for educators to learn about what's happening out there. But also to be able to learn how to go about using these things in their classroom. There, there is an overwhelm of information, of, of techniques, of ways to approach things, of curriculum. So obviously you can't do everything. And what I'm hoping to do here is to share all of these different ways that you can try things out in your classroom and you'll see which ones work for you, which ones are going to stick, which are going to work with your teaching philosophy. But it's not always evident and easy to know how to apply some of these findings. And that's one of the things I, I hope to be able to, when I talk to guests, to be able to learn from them. Not only what is it that you have done, what have you found, what have you learned, but how do teachers go about trying this out in the classroom? What can they do? Do you have resources? Do you have workshops? Is there something you can share here with us right now? And today I'm talking with a guest who also cares about these very ideas. I'm speaking with Nick Young. He's currently a physics education research and computational math and science PhD candidate at Michigan State University. He founded the website PER Bytes, dedicated to making the results of physics education research meaningful and accessible to all, with bi-monthly posts that provide short, clear descriptions of what's happening in the field of physics education research. His current dissertation work explores the graduate admissions process in physics and whether or not the physics GRE is valuable or effective. He was a grad fellow in Michigan State's Hub for Innovation in Learning and Technology and helped create a resource for faculty about planning, implementing, and assessing experiential interdisciplinary courses. In this episode, we discuss his various projects and the common theme of getting the word out on education research. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from the teachers, researchers, students, and professionals who explore innovative learning, motivate new curricula, apply physics in their careers, and encourage an inclusive and healthy classroom environment. Hello, Nick, and welcome to Physics Alive. Uh, let's start with a moment of gratitude. Who has been an important mentor in your life and career, and what role have they played in your growth and trajectory? Thanks for having me today. Excited to be on the show. So I'd say probably two people have been really big kind of mentors in getting where I am today. So first, my undergraduate research advisor, Andrew Heckler. So he's the one who first kind of got me into PER in the first place and really helping me of kind of decide a graduate school path and keep going forward. And I think now in graduate school, it's been my advisor, Danny Caballero, who's been both very good supporting me in PER and then also kind of allowing me to explore my interests around that as well. But I think 
having a supportive mentor has definitely been a very good asset in graduate school. And I don't think, don't think I'd be where I am if I didn't have such a supportive advisor now. So I'm always curious how researchers find their way into physics education research. And you've kind of given us a, a little taste of that this may have come from your undergraduate days. So to start with, how were you first drawn into physics as an undergraduate major? And then what led you to education research? I entered my undergrad at Ohio State as a physics major, but I think it was probably my high school physics teacher that was most responsible for that. So my high school had a pretty good physics program that both the instructors there had advanced degrees in physics. So I think they were very supportive of kind of me pursuing that and giving advice of like things you want to think about. But I think kind of physics in general was, I guess, liking both math and science. But I guess I wouldn't say I knew a huge amount of kind of like what science careers entailed at the time. But I think physics to me seemed like the most natural way to combine of like doing math with wanting to also do science. And then from there, I just kind of keep going and enjoying it and slowly branching out as I go. But then for PER, that was at Ohio State. It was actually kind of like a chance occurrence. But in one of my physics classes, the physics education group was recruiting people for like an extra credit project of like, we're studying student problem solving. So come do this problem. And like, as long as you come or do some other activity, you'll get the extra credit. And it was working kind of through that as the participant and then talking with the postdoc researcher after of like, hey, this is pretty cool. Of Like, how do I get involved with that? And then kind of getting pointed in the right direction and eventually meeting Dr. Heckler and kind of starting to do work with his group. Yeah, I definitely understand that that feeling of when getting into physics, it's uh, I, I really liked math. And I thought, mm-hmm. what am I going to do with that? It's like, I want to apply it to something. And then uh, I sort of, yeah, stumbled upon physics. It, it didn't dawn on me when I was in high school, uh, but when I was in college, that's like the pieces started coming together and it's like, oh, like physics, that could be a good, that could be a good route. Let's, let's get started with your current research and we'll work outward from there. So in 2019, you and your advisor, uh, Danny Caballero submitted a paper for the physics education research conference proceedings titled using machine learning to understand physics graduate school admissions. So a key finding from this paper, uh, a paper that happened to earn a notable paper award at the conference, congratulations, uh, was that you could correctly predict whether an applicant would be admitted with 75% accuracy based solely off the applicant's undergraduate GPA and physics GRE score. Um, I can already see how that's probably not a great thing that there's just two predictors. So this seems to have launched you into further studies about physics GRE's role in the graduate admissions process, which we'll get into in a moment. But to start, why why was this result of machine learn of the machine learning project so significant? I think it was significant for two reasons. So kind of the first one would be a different way of looking at graduate admissions. So a lot of the work in physics at the time was focused more on doing kind of surveys of graduate of people doing graduate admissions or observing the process, but there hadn't been too much work yet looking at the applications themselves. So I think it was kind of like a first step in that direction of approaching graduate admissions, both from a different angle in terms of the data but then also a different approach of kind of using predictive algorithms. But I think that's becoming a newer thing in PER in general of starting to move beyond just explanatory analysis and also think about kind of predictive analysis. But then I think the second part that you mentioned of like the 75% part is that I think it really provides a quantitative measure of how important these two things are. So as like an undergraduate applying to graduate school, like a lot of my advent- mentors, advisors, and friends kind of gave anecdotal evidence of like, yeah, these two things are really important. But I think the result really gives a sense of like, 
well, you can, like, if we're thinking in a classroom style of, like, you can earn a C, essentially, on predicting who's going to come into, into earn admission to a program simply by knowing two numbers. And I think that's the, that's the kind of the big takeaway of, like, yes, these things are really important, that even though you submit a whole package of materials when you apply, that it's really these two things that faculty seem to be focusing on, and the rest was kind of like those second-order corrections, so to speak. So this uh, result led to further studies about the physics GRE's role in the graduate admissions process and evidence that the GRE score does not help applicants stand out and an argument to, in fact, eliminate the GRE from the admissions process. So what have you uncovered about the physics GRE that leads to this argument? So for in terms of like what we're learning was thinking, I guess, about what benefits it does provide. There's been a lot of kind of other studies that happened like over the last decade of finding that there's scoring discrepancies between different applicants. So it's not everyone doesn't necessarily do the same on it that there's known gender and race correlations. And there's also issues with cost, access, and predictive of whether it's actually useful for completing a degree. And it hasn't really stood up to scrutiny there. So which then it's kind of like, well, why might we keep it? And one of the I guess kind of one of the main reasons that people might argue for keeping it is it kind of like allows people to stand out. That if you do really well on this test, maybe that can kind of compensate for other parts of your application. But the study Danny and I did found that's not necessarily true. That in fact, when we were looking at kind of admissions probability based on GPA and physics GRE score, we found that kind of either or is good enough. That if you did really well in one of them, that the committee see those about equal. But the problem is when you consider kind of the matching of them of doing well on one and not so well on the other, we found there's a lot more potential to do harm by doing work bad on the GRE, but having good grades as opposed to the opposite. So it's kind of seeing like, so sure, it may help some applicants, but there's a lot more applicants that it's going to be harming in the process that it sounds like the standing out argument is kind of an exception to what's actually happening. So have, have you uh, and your advisors started looking into what might be some better practices for, for graduate admissions, ways to help students who are maybe underprepared in their, in their backgrounds to help them stand out a little bit more when, when they may in fact have the, the skills and the strength if given the opportunity? We have to some degree. So kind of actually coming into MSU was an unexpected thing of that they were already doing some graduate work there. So our department had started to change their admissions process of trying to move away from kind of just the raw number approach to start doing more holistic-based admissions. So we kind of had a, I guess, natural kind of pre-post data set of the previous grad director had been keeping records of kind of who was applying. And then the new director, when they started to switch to this, I guess, holistic approach, keeping the same things. So we could see of kind of like, okay, how does this holistic approach make a difference? And for the holistic approach, we started using a rubric. So we're actually looking at, okay, well, we can look at, say, GRE scores still in GPA, but let's consider broader than that. So thinking about, well, does someone fit with our program? So are they gonna, or what they're coming to grad school, can our program provide that? What about their research? Do they kind of, do they have interests aligned with ours? Do they know what research entails? But then also things like non-cognitive skills. So I think that's kind of a, area that's seeing a lot more interest now of realizing that not everything, that there's a lot of kind of these so-called soft skills that really matter in the professional world, but our applications don't really consider that as much. And especially with grad school, where it's like, it's, it's more of a marathon than a sprint. So it's going to be, you're facing with challenges, like your experiment doesn't work. So now back to the drawing board. 
to kind of like, do you have those perseverance? Are you able to adjust your approach? Do you have the creativity things that all matter in graduate school, but our process really wasn't considering before. So now those are things in there. And part of what will appear in my thesis is kind of an initial analysis of what that process has been looking like. And so far, it does suggest that it might be a more equitable way to be doing admissions. That, for example, you still have kind of these known test score biases, but then if they're considered a small part of it rather than the overall thing, then maybe that's not as detrimental then. Yeah, it's interesting the the, the parallels I see with this work and, and so much of what's going on with thinking about what to do in, the, say, the high school classroom or the undergraduate classroom or in, in more equitable hiring processes. So it seems that all across the board, there's... Uh, there's a look now towards how can we be more equitable? How can we make sure everybody is having an equal opportunity mm-hmm. when there have been unequal backgrounds that don't necessarily mean they, they can't do the they can't do the work. It's just they haven't had the opportunities beforehand. So. Yeah, I think you're exactly right with that. And also thinking about kind of what is, I guess, what is considered a good background for it? So do we have this kind of like very narrow framing of what a good applicant looks like? Or are we considering that there can be multiple kind of different type of good applicants? And I think that's also one thing that we're trying to consider of like, well, traditionally you might think grad school applicant, oh, they're lots of research experience, great grades, good on tests. But like, is that the only way you can be successful in grad students or as a graduate student? Or what about people that are not necessarily interested in going in academic careers? Like say, if you want to go more of a teaching route or say policy route, of are you necessarily going to come in with the same profile or how can we make sure that we're looking at those students equally and making sure we're not kind of just discounting them because they're not what we would, contri- I guess, traditionally consider as like a academic, a good candidate. Shifting gears a little bit. So you say, speaking of alternate routes, and we, we could probably talk all day about graduate studies, but of course we are uh, we are, are more well-rounded beings and we have a lot of interest. So um, one thing I've noticed is that you are involved with a variety of other projects that show your deep commitment to improving education for everyone. So as one example, you are a graduate fellow in Michigan State's Hub for Innovation in Learning and Technology. So from the, the website, I read that its mission is to help their partners, i.e. seems like just about everyone on campus, uh, help them design and deliver transformative and equitable learning experiences. So this sounds pretty great. Uh, what is this all about and how did you get involved? The Hub's role is to be kind of like both an external and internal partner at the same time. So the departments may want to be kind of rethinking their classes of like, hey, we want to change up our introductory courses. As we all kind of know that faculty already have very limited time and can't keep on taking on necessarily new roles. So the role of the hub is to kind of be that external partner that can kind of get that groundwork going. So it might be, okay, we'll work with you on doing this, that we have our expertise of kind of how students might be learned or how to design courses, and we can help guide that process. But then eventually, longer term, kind of spin it off back into the department. So I guess kind of like the, the Kickstarter to kind of light the fire in the process. And then once the process is good and going, then it can go back to kind of the department's project. Mm-hmm. Right. So instead of needing an external, external consultant, mm-hmm. which, is, which isn't even part of the university, you actually mm-hmm. have something there. Now, is, is this something that's a little bit newer at, at Michigan State or has this been around for a number of years now? Yeah, I think it's relatively new, but I think I want to say it's been like within the last decade or so that it's really got off the ground and going. So since you were since you were part of this, what types of projects have you been involved with there? So for mine was focused around um, experiential learning courses. So there's been 
So the experiential learning isn't really new. It's been around for quite a while, but there's been concerns of kind of the equity around them. I'm like, well, who actually gets to take these courses? And kind of like in higher ed in general, there's like the wealth privilege of, well, to do experiential learning, you probably might have to have extra costs, travel, and so forth. And the project I was working on was thinking about, okay, well, how can we make those something that's more accessible to everyone? And also, how do we help faculty kind of design one of those courses? So as a fellow, I got placed on a Spartan Studios project, is what we called it there, where it was thinking of, okay, how can we make a play kit, which is like a mix of a playbook and a toolkit, for what instructors should be thinking of as they're designing this course. So covering things of like, okay, here's how to co-teach with different instructors so you can really make it an interdisciplinary course, or you're really making it real world and combining multiple perspectives. How do you assess students in these courses where there isn't like just a right or wrong or tests? If you're trying to make a real world impact, how do you see of like our students on that right track? How do you provide them feedback? And also thinking of the real world perspective of, well, can we make partnerships with other people in the community so there is a like real world impact? So like we've done, the project has done stuff where it's working with, say, like some of the wildlife centers on campus or maybe the food waste program to try and think about, okay, well, we're designing solutions. How can we actually implement them on campus? So my work was really focusing on that kind of that play kit that I was mentioning of what are the best practices instructors need to keep in mind throughout this? Yeah, it's actually posted online. So the I teach MSU is the place. So if you just Google like Spartan Studios Toolkit, that you should be able to find it within one of the first few results. But it should should be publicly accessible if you're interested in kind of learning more about it and maybe even using it in your own courses. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll definitely link to that in my show notes so so that folks can find it. Have you thought about how you might apply this specifically to physics? What experiential learning might look look like in physics? Just as a, you know, I think of, I, I kind of get jealous when I see other faculty get to do travel courses. And I think it works, it seems to work so well with, say, biology or, or marine sciences or history. You go to an art museum, you go to this location and go, go to that location. And um, it seems like it's easier. And I, I wonder, I've always kind of wondered, is, is that something that we can do in physics? Or also, like you're saying, that maybe there's too much extra cost associated with traveling. You know, what does experiential look like if you don't want to necessarily have that extra cost for traveling? So I'm curious what you've thought of here for physics. I think it depends on what exactly the instructor's interested. So I could see the travel part might be a little bit more difficult. So since I could see, like, depending where you're located or what type of physics course you're teaching, there may be differences. Like, so for introductory physics, where it's a lot more, I guess, kind of like hands-on type things like mechanics, that that seems more reasonable. While quantum mechanics might be a little bit harder to think of, like, okay, what's the real-world impact where students can get, kind of get their hands-on stuff? But I think an interesting part of just thinking of that real-world impact of, like, how can we make how can we make the physics that we're teaching seem like it's, I guess, less theoretical and more something that students can, I guess, grasp? But I think one thing that I encountered like in my physics education work is feeling like this is super abstract, but like, especially with quantum and thermal dynamics and statistical mechanics of like, this is so abstract that I'm just doing math of like, what's the real world part of it? So I think that could be a really interesting approach for the experiential of like, okay, how do we connect what we're doing in these courses to real world stuff? And seeing like with quantum computing, for example, starting to become like a hot topic of, well, maybe that's something we can start working into the courses or thinking of like, okay, what is, 
yeah, I guess, how does this actually impact people or something like that, where it just doesn't seem like we're just moving equations of like, no, this is real stuff. It's not just like mathematical tricks or something we're doing. So when I was working at the the University of New England, they had a, a biomechanics lab that had uh, a number of different high-tech cameras that had uh, four sensors built into the floor. And I was able to take my introductory course, at least when I taught it over the summer, to to this research space. And they were able to get to learn a little bit about how that's used in uh, in exercise and kinesiology types of classes and to learn how we can study the biomechanics of the body in a little bit more detail. And I think that was great to be able to just get students out of the classroom and to go someplace. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a, a medical physics course that I taught once, uh, I was able to do a variety of field trips. We actually went to the dentist's office once and we got to see all of the cool gadgets they had there. And there was so much stuff I didn't know about the you know, different laser technology, imaging technology. And um, I also had a chance to go to a, an optics company that did a lot of work with endoscopy. And so we were able to to see sort of the design process and and what they were thinking about to to get these types of tools onto the onto the medical shelf. So um, that that's a sort of piece. And I I wonder if field trips kind of fall into that experiential learning as as well, where you get to go someplace and see what what people are doing. You get a sense of these different careers that you could have and still be uh, taking a look at that you know physics in, in for instance. Yeah, I think you're exactly right there of like the, getting that place part. So that was one of actually in the play kit, that's one of the suggestions of trying to connect the work to an actual place. So it's like to see the real world impact. So I think even something like those field trips of like, this isn't just in the classroom stuff that people are using this in the real world could be like a very simple starting point and also not a huge commitment either that it's something you can do in say a class period or two. And who doesn't get excited about the word field trip? So yes. <laughs> I, mean, I guess it's two words, but um, okay. So we're, we're kind of extending outward. We, we start in your graduate lab and then we extend to the broader uh, Michigan State campus. And now extending outside of your, your work at Michigan State, you are also engaged more broadly in science and education communication. Uh, in fact, I first learned about your work with PER Bytes, a website that helps to make the results of physics education research meaningful and accessible to all. In fact, I believe you were the founder of this project, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what inspired you to start this site and how many folks are involved now? When I was an undergraduate, one of my astronomy professors just kind of made a passing remark of like, oh, there's this thing called AstroBice. So they take astronomy research and write it at like an undergraduate level. And I thought at the time, like, this is really cool. Like, this would be awesome to have for like my own field of like not having to read papers all the time of like, here's the short versions of them. But at the time, there really wasn't anything. It wasn't probably for another two years or so after that when I was becoming a graduate student and kind of starting to become comfortable reading papers and understanding them. I'm starting to kind of like reach out to those people at Astrobytes and be like, hey, is there a way that I can kind of extend this to other, to like my own research area? And they were very supportive with that, that they've helped a lot of other sites get off the ground. But I think there's over a dozen or so of these kind of different bite sites now that focus on different areas of science. So I think it was a lot of it of kind of just seeing what other people have done and kind of wishing that was some, that my own field had something like that. And then seeing that there wasn't of like, well, I guess I can be the person that kind of starts to go down that path and see where it goes from there. Mm-hmm. So I think now there we you go. Have, and that's kind of what I, yeah. I was going to say. That's kind of what I thought with this podcast that it's like, I'd love mm-hmm. to listen to a podcast about education and physics related stuff. And well, I don't really see what I'm looking for. Oh, I guess I'll make mm-hmm. it. <laughs> 
So, so, so you're a writer for this now, it, but I think you also have other writers and you're, you basically have a call out for, for more writers who might want to get involved. Yeah. So I think we have probably in the past, we've had four or five other people that kind of regularly contribute at different points, but yeah, we're always looking for other people who are interested, even if it's kind of one of those, like maybe just a guest post every so often of that. I think it's, at least personally for me, it's been a great experience just kind of learning how to take research papers and condense them down. I think both in terms of learning that skill, but then also thinking about my own research papers of now reading other people's to get to the key points of like, am I writing my own research papers in a good way for other people? Am I really writing them for my audience or am I writing them more for myself? And I think it's been probably one of the most useful things of really focusing on the person I should be writing for is my audience. Are they getting out of this paper what they want? So are they able to see the big picture in my research? Are they able to do enough stuff that they can replicate results? And I think I think that's really helped me a lot as a writer of just to have that change in perspective. What are the types of resources that we can expect to find at PER Bytes? A lot of the stuff we've done so far is summarizing articles. So that tends to be a little bit based on my own interests of things that I'm kind of knowledgeable about or interest or the papers that I tend to notice, like, so I'll say a lot of things I do right about now are finding through like social media that I see the authors advertising like, oh, that's interesting. But other <laughs> times it'll be more like the journal mailing list. So I think it tends to be of things that I find both interesting and think also might be impactful to readers. So like I tend to things of what are things that have kind of clear practical ways you can use this as opposed to more theoretical work. So like as a teacher or an instructor, here's this one piece of tidbit of what this suggests you might want to try in your class. But then I think we've also been trying to follow some of the examples of the other sites of moving beyond just the research and also thinking of things like career advice or like, say, applying to graduate Hmm. school. So trying these are like, well, there are papers that talk about this. So let's rather than summarizing those papers, maybe pull some tidbits out of them and combine that in kind of its own post. I think we've done two about Hmm. graduate school and then one that was more focused on mentoring undergraduate students. Kind of like, what are the evidence-based suggestions for how to form a good mentoring relationship? That's great. Yeah, I've I've really enjoyed this site. You know, I, I just discovered it recently, and and now since I, I I follow Twitter every now and again, you make a little mm-hmm. post about it, a new one that comes up, and I mm-hmm. uh, I've definitely enjoyed reading those. And there certainly there are some research papers that get up there and, and page length at ten or twenty pages. Mm-hmm. So if uh, if somebody else has done the work to sort of condense that down, that's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. What are one or two surprising studies that you have written about that you found particularly meaningful or impactful for you? The first one would be that undergraduate one, the undergraduate mentoring one I mentioned. So I think that was when I was really starting to, I guess, mentor undergrads in my own research for the first time. So I think there was a very personal interest of like, okay, well, I'm not exactly sure what to do. So I'm assuming other people have that that same type of reaction. So this can be kind of like a very timely and useful piece. And I think that was also one that I had a lot more fun writing. That I think I a lot kind of switched it more to like a blog and have a sense of humor running through that, as opposed to some of the other ones, which are a lot more, I guess, kind of journal type tone of let's focus on the results and focus on the science as opposed to kind of acknowledge the real human behind some of the stuff. I think the other one that I've really enjoyed was the diversity innovation paradox. So the claim behind that is that it's kind of, I guess, assumed that I guess the narrative is that like diversity is good for companies. Like you get fresh ideas 
And but yet at the same time that if these people are kind of so-called like the diverse people are doing all this great work, why aren't they getting recognition for it? And it was a really interesting paper to see kind of like, yes, that is accurate that if you look at like graduate students from minoritized groups that they do write more impactful thesis, new and more ideas, but yet they're not getting the recognition. They're not getting faculty positions based on that. So kind of acknowledging that there's this issue in there of like we're we have people that are doing great work, but we're not recognizing them due to systematic factors. So thinking about, well, what should, how can we actually do that? Or how can we improve science so we're actually recognizing people who are doing great work rather than restricting it to kind of what we consider the traditional academic type person? Uh, I'll pull up those two that you mentioned specifically, and I'll, I'll link to those as well. But of course, um, I'll have the link for, for looking at all the different PER bytes. Do you call them per bytes or PER bytes? So I've said PER bytes. It's kind of, yeah, just spelling out the PER part and then the bytes that. It's probably better because otherwise you're going to think of a, of a cat like nibbling mm -hmm. on some treats or something like that, which yeah. could be a good logo, I guess, but it's mm -hmm. not, not quite what we're going for. <laughs> I think given physics and love the cats with Schrodinger as a cat, that might actually be a pretty nice tie in there. Oh, that's true. Okay. I'd like to tie up our conversation about your experiences and projects by reimagining the future. So what do you hope to see next in the world of science and education communication? There's two things that I would, I guess, be interested in seeing more. So I think the first thing is thinking about kind of how we share the results of our research. So I think a lot of academia is focused on the idea of, well, you get the publication out and that's the end of the story. But then there's kind of the so much more of, okay, well, we've done the research. Now, how do we actually start applying it? And I think that seems like it gets kind of pushed off to the side of that's like, well, as a scientist, that's not necessarily my job to be doing. That kind of goes to someone else. So I think one thing I'd like to see is more of kind of changing that narrative of like doing outreach around your work, getting it out to the people who are going to benefit from that work is something that gets kind of rewarded in the academic structure as opposed to like, well, it's nice mm -hmm. if you do it, but it's not necessary. So I think right. going back to PER bytes of thinking of like, well, this is education research, but the people who are, I guess that it needs to be going, uh, should be going to is more of educators rather than other researchers. So that's guess one of those unique things about education is the people, the research isn't necessarily, is designed for both researchers and other people. So how do we make sure it's getting to everyone rather than just kind of staying within that research echo chamber? And I think kind of a related point then is also focusing on, I guess, more emphasis in the curriculum on these communication skills around work, around kind of like research and sharing out. Because like an undergraduate, I'd say there was kind of like the general education requirement of, oh, you need to take two writing courses. But that was very like separated out from my physics type research or even science work. And even coming into graduate school, where it's been a lot of graduate schools, take a bunch of physics classes, learn concepts and mathematical skills. But then learning how to do the, so like kind of the communication skills I've learned have been a lot of like on my own time outside opportunities. And I think it's been really useful in graduate school to learn of like, well, here's the science, science-based ways to start communicating your work. But that wasn't, it was something that I had to choose to pursue on my own rather than being something in the curriculum, even though I've acknowledged that it's been very useful for kind of my work as part of my program to develop these skills and learn these things. Yeah, I've definitely thought about these types of ideas myself where you have what once you have your research done, yeah, you can write up a paper on it, you submit yeah. that, uh, and you can go to a conference. And now everybody can share all of their ideas at the conference. But I, I always find that that's 
that's never been enough for for me to put the ideas into practice. You know, mm-hmm. I, I love attending the AAPT conferences and, you know, you sit and listen to this thing for 10 minutes or sit and listen to that thing for half an hour and you write, you know, pages of notes and then you get home and maybe you remember to look at the notes again. Maybe mm-hmm. one of those ideas you try out in your class, but there's, there's just not that, there's just not that follow-up often. And maybe with a lot of dedication that could happen, but I suspect that we're all we're all very busy human beings, and that might not necessarily happen. So, so where where is it that we can have sort of the constant conversation, the the continuous communication of these ideas? So, yeah, I guess almost as a researcher of wanting to see, like, even within the papers of like, well, how do I implement this? Like you're saying of like, yeah, this is really cool, but then like, what about all those logistic challenges of like, well, what if students aren't responding to this, or well, I have a limited time schedule? How do I kind of adapt the things? So even something as simple as that is kind of the thinking of like, well, if teachers or instructors are going to be using this kind of what are things they would want to know when reading your paper or listening to your talk. So I guess maybe even simple, simple as that of like starting to focus on like, OK, how would someone be using the implications of this result? So it's more than just writing notes and maybe trying one later of like, OK, how do we move beyond just that? Right. Yeah. I'm just thinking of, okay, you, you go through the effort and it's like, I'm going to do some kind of studio instruction where there's lots of hands-on activities. And then the students mm-hmm. come back and say, well, we're not being taught anymore. We have to teach ourselves on our own. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden now it's like, okay, now we have to start responding to, to that. And mm-hmm. that there are a lot of great responses to that. There's a lot of folks who have thought about that. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really, boy, there's a lot of pieces that have to get put together. It's not as simple. It's not as simple as attending that 10 minute talk or reading that mm-hmm. paper. Um, it's like where, where is the support after that? And that's that's always been a big question in in my mind. And I think I think something like PER bytes is fantastic for that. I, I'm I'm hoping that my podcast is going to be able to do that, where mm-hmm. we can start, you know, having some of these these ideas talked about and things you can read about on sort of a more continual basis. And there's there's so many threads that always tie together. Mm-hmm. You know, so much of what we know about good education comes down to more of uh, active learning type strategies and mm-hmm. and really helping to make everything more accessible for our students in the, the classroom. So there's all these pieces that tie together. And even if you're learning about different projects here and there, uh, you're, you're still seeing the, the ties and, and you can you can grow mm-hmm. through that. So I'm rambling. Um, but anyway, yeah, I want to say thank you for for all of the work that, that you have done with uh, mm-hmm. with PER Bytes and and the, the great thought that you're, you're putting in in your your research project. Um, I'm, I'm actually a little curious what what you're off to next. You uh, we said in the uh, conversation before we started recording that uh, you were heading off to do some postdoc postdoctoral work. Uh, what do you know what project you'll be looking at there? So a little bit. So I'll be kind of moving down the interstate to the University of Michigan, working in their Center for Academic Innovation. So it'll be kind of similar, similar in scope-ish to what I was doing at the Hub, of starting to think about kind of, I guess, more of how do we use our research to make changes at the university? So moving away from, well, let's just publish an article and move on, of like, well, how do we put that research into practice to start making changes? And I think we'll be kind of looking at the assessment level. So of thinking of like, well, we're trying to make changes at the university or trying new programs, but are those actually working and kind of what can we do so people at the university can also start to kind of evaluate their own programs. So I think building both of doing some of the work, but then also kind of building resources up for people to be able to, um, to have the tools to kind of think about their own projects. 
Okay. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Looking forward to uh, see what you get there. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll come back to you in a couple of years and we'll, we'll follow up and, and see what you've learned. <laughs> yeah, that could be fun. <laughs> All right. So where can listeners learn more about your work? Yeah, so I tend to be pretty active on social media. So on my Twitter account, I try and keep up to date. And then also my website, again, try and keep that up to date with new papers and related things. So both of them are the same, Nick Young, PER. I can share the links for that. But both of those tend to be relatively regularly updated with what I've been up to. Well, it's been so great talking to you today, learning more about uh, what you've been up to. And I, I wish you well as you, you wrap up your dissertation and you move on to the, to the next stage of your career. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been great being on the show and talking with you today. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Nick. I've had some episodes talking with educators and researchers that have been doing amazing work dating back decades. In this one, it was fun to talk with someone on the front end of their career. Nick's already thinking about the big challenges ahead and the important questions around how we get the findings of education research into the hands and classrooms of teachers. That's the real goal, right? How does all of this work benefit our students? That's going to be one of my biggest missions, helping to disseminate what has been learned in the education research community and helping teachers bring it to the classroom. To learn more about Nick, his work, and PER Bytes, check out the show notes, either by scrolling down on your podcast app or by visiting physicsalive.com slash Nick. If you have any comments to share related to the episode, I've finally figured out how to make a comment section appear on the episode webpage. So leave your thoughts and we can have a great discussion. Again, the page is physicsalive.com slash Nick. A couple of quick notes I want to share before I go. So I'm a member of AAPT, the American Association of Physics Teachers, and I often get emails with different resources, different events, uh, different things going on in the community. And one of them I wanted to point out because here we are just about ready to enter June. And that is amusement park time for possibly many high schools out there. And hopefully with things opening back up, that's going to be continuing again this year. I wanted to share a resource that came across my desk. It's the AAPT DigiKit on amusement park science. So amusement park science is a DigiKit that integrates physics, engineering, and technology as students use smartphone accelerometers and high-speed video to analyze forces and motion in amusement park rides. This kit is a great opportunity for students to engage in scientific field work in a fun, authentic environment. Members of AAPT get free access to this resource, so I'll put a link to it in my show notes. Another thing that's just gotten started through AAPT is AAPT Communities. It's a platform for AAPT members to communicate, collaborate, and become better physics educators in a collaborative space. So their hope is that these communities can become your go-to site to share lesson plans, labs, attend online events, and gain advice from your peers. This platform was just released this past week. All you have to do is go to aapt.org, and one of the new tabs at the, the top of the webpage is the Communities tab. So you can click on that. And if you are a member, you can log in with your membership ID and you can get going and join in on this community. So I'm really looking forward to being part of it myself and joining in on the conversations. I'd love to be able to share different events and resources that are going on in the physics education community, whether it's part of AAPT or NSTA, maybe some other organization, or maybe just some event that's going on out there. So if you've got something you would like for me to share, just let me know and I'll get it on to an upcoming episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. 
You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter and Physics Alive page on Facebook. You can reach me there or at brad at physicsalive.com. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired to try something new. Today's action step, visit perbytes.org and learn about a new study in education research. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you share your knowledge of education with those around you, and be well.